morning, everyone. Just a quick um, note just on the baking for the church camp, by the way. The campsite is actually a nut-free zone, so please no nuts in the baking. All right, I know that uh, some of those uh, slices and biscuits and things taste really, really good with various nuts in, but unfortunately, at the camp, we can't have them. All right, so uh, if you're planning on uh, preparing anything for that, yeah, just keep that in mind, okay? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for uh, your goodness to us, that you are indeed the great and mighty God. And Father, this morning that uh, we can come here in this place, have the freedom to, uh, to worship you, to open up your word, to hear it proclaimed, and Lord, to learn from it. We pray, Lord, that, uh, that we won't take this for granted this morning, but that we, you will use this time beneficially uh, for ourselves, Lord, but also, uh, Lord, recognising that the knowledge that we uh, uh, um, obtain from, uh, from this teaching, Lord, that uh, you are, you've called us to use that knowledge in order to, uh, to be proclaimers of your goodness, your glory, your greatness within our local community and throughout this world. And so we commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, there was a, um, a show on the ABC called The Inventors. Some of you might uh, recall that. It's uh, basically sort of showcasing some of the uh, quite, uh, you know, quite unique inventions that some of you know, some people in Australia sort of come up with. But one of the segments on that particular show was one of the presenters would come in with a particular sort of tool or instrument or something like that, and the other presenters actually had to guess what it was, what its purpose was, what it was used for. So I thought I might do something a little bit similar this morning with uh, with us. So here's the first implement. Have a bit of a look at that, and uh, if, if anyone in the room might like to uh, have a guess at what that uh, what that instrument is and what its purpose is for. What's that, Ron? Holes for buttons. Good guess, but no, it's not for holes for buttons. Vaccinations. Another good guess. You're on the on the right track, but not quite. Oh, Harry's got it right. Got it in one. There it is. It's actually called an artificial leech. And it was used for the purpose of bloodletting back in the, uh, the 17th and 18th centuries, where uh, it would basically be used to uh, puncture holes in people's, in parts of their bodies in order for blood to, uh, to drain out. Apparently that was uh, considered to be a medical marvel back in those days to, uh, to make a person bleed for a certain amount of time in order to sort of make them well again. Um, George Washington, apparently the first president of the United States, he um, was uh, very much keen on this, but um, according to reports, it actually led to his death. Uh, he had a sore throat. He thought, oh, a bloodletting might work, and he died. So there you go. All right, here's the next one. Mm, it's not medical, by the way. Anyone want to hazard a bit of a guess? Something to do with shoes, a shoehorn? No, unfortunately it's not a shoehorn. No. All right, I'll let you in on the secret. It's a can opener. Yes, from the 19, early 19th century, 1910 apparently. So there you go. If you had cans in the house back in those days, that was the implement that you used to actually open cans. Here's the last one. Quite a, a, uh, quite a large instrument. Any ideas? A what, sorry? 
A flintlock. Well done, Jim. Yes, it actually is a, uh, a fire starter, a flintlock fire starter from, again, from the uh, 18th and uh, 19th centuries. So if you wanted to start a fire in your home, that was how you did it with one of these instruments, not a box of matches or anything like that. It was one of these, fangle, you know, one of these uh, newfangled things which they had back in those days. Quite amazing, isn't it? But it's quite interesting to sort of see what, you know, what these things are and what their purpose are. But the question I want to ask us today is this, is what purpose do we have as the church here at North Pine Baptist Church? What, why do we exist as a church? You know, just as, as many of us were kind of a little bit unsure or uncertain about what some of those things were we've just looked at and what their purpose was, perhaps we, you know, if we took a bit of a straw poll across the congregation today, we might get a lot of differing and, uh, opinions of what the church is meant to be about, of why we exist but I think it's really, really, really important for us to be very, very clear on this particular uh, matter, to know what our common aim is as God's church here in this place, to know who we should be and what we should be about. Because if we don't, then we could end up pulling in all sorts of different directions and, and really not getting anywhere and causing each other a lot of frustration. Of course, another danger in, in that is in, in not knowing our purpose is that we could also become aimless and end up being like the, uh, the church at Ephesus that we read about in Revelation chapter 2, where uh, the Apostle John, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, talking about Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to the church, he says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. What we see here is a picture of a church that is really, you know, doing some really wonderful things, some really good things in the name of Jesus Christ, but ultimately they have lost their purpose. They have lost the essential thing it is to be the church of Christ, and that is a genuine love and heart for him and for his glory. The church was just basically a church that was going through the motions. It had basically what was called a mechanical type of faith. A mechanical faith. Folks, it's, time, it's, it's really important that, uh, that we take time to check our bearings, to evaluate ourselves, and to determine if we are still the, you know, on the right track, so to speak. We are still being the people who God has called us to be and, and about what God wants us to be about. Two things that we need to keep central in all that we do are firstly the great commandment where Jesus says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength and that we shall love our neighbour as ourselves. Jesus says there is no other commandment greater than these. He says that in Mark's Gospel. Also apart from the great commandment we are also to keep in mind the great commission where Jesus says to his disciples, right at the end of his earthly ministry, before he ascends back into heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, these two directives that Jesus gave to the New Testament church really sum up the purpose of his universal church, of his church that 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 consists of Christians, believers all throughout the world, right throughout history. So keeping these two things in mind, we can then seek to define the purpose within our own local context, the purpose that God has for us as his church. And it is this, that the North Pine Baptist Church exists for the purpose of worshipping God, of worshipping God and proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that in order that people might come to know him personally, might come into a personal, living relationship with Jesus Christ. That they might know him just not in knowledge, but, as a, but in a real and dynamic way. That they will follow him obediently. That they will continue to grow in their faith and in their knowledge of the Lord. And then that, that, and serve him faithfully. To be people who are about sowing the kingdom of God within our world today. That is our purpose as the church here at North Pine Baptist Church. And folks, we're going to have this, you know, we're going to be highlighting this an awful lot this year as we, as we seek to, to get a real clarity to what we as God's church here at North Pine are to be about. If we wanted to, could condense it down even further, the mission of the North Pine Baptist Church is to see people become mature disciples of Jesus Christ. As I said, through that knowing, through growing, and through sowing. No, grow, sow. Get used to those three words, folks, because you're going to hear a lot about them this year. Okay, you're probably going to get to a point where you're going to be sick of me saying no, grow, sow. Okay. But that's but but hopefully by you know by re-emphasising that time and time and time again it'll hit the mark and we'll understand what we as a church are meant to be about. We're going to take the next several weeks to unpack these things and hopefully giving us a clarity you know about about who we are about our identity and our purpose as the church here at North Pine here in this particular local community and how we can best minister for God here and further a further afield. So to kick things off then this morning, we're going to be focusing on this aspect of worship. We exist to worship God. Now you might say, well, have you really considered, what is worship? Worship is such a broad word. It's such a a huge, big thing to get our minds around. But essentially, what is worship? I want to just uh, put up a couple of quotes this morning, which kind of help just sort of really focus our uh, our minds. Louis Giglio, some of you might know, know him. He's uh, quite uh, got a real evangelistic heart for God. He's a pastor in the states. Does a lot of a uh, lot of work over there. An author and, uh, and and speaker. He says this: that worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who He is, for what He has done. And it is expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. John MacArthur, another minister, another pastor in the States, says this, another prolific author as well, says, Worship is the submission of all our nature to God, whereby one prostrates themselves before the superior God with a sense of respect, awe, reverence, honour and service. Worship. Have you really considered what it means to worship God? Both from an individual perspective, but also for us together, collectively, as the corporate body of Christ here 
in this church. One of the most helpful or one of the more helpful Bible passages that speak of a proper worship of God is found in Psalm 96, the passage that Jody read to us this morning. So if you've got your Bibles there, please turn with me to uh, to that particular psalm. Essentially, Psalm 96 is is a call, if you like, a, a call for all people to worship the one true God. A call to all of humanity, all of mankind to worship the one true God. Now there's uh, some, you know, there's a bit of a conjecture actually as to uh, as to who wrote this psalm and why it was written, but uh, this psalm uh, appears almost in its entirety in First Chronicles chapter 16, which would suggest that it was actually written for the occasion when David actually brought the uh, the Ark of God to Jerusalem. Uh, it was uh, it had been uh, it had been um, stolen by the uh, the Philistines and had been in in their cities for a while, but. It, they, uh, God had brought a lot of afflictions on the people and they decided to give it back to the Israelites. It had stayed in the house of Obed-Edom for, for some time and then David wanted to bring it to Jerusalem. And, uh, and there was this wonderful, huge, big celebration day where the Ark of God was triumphantly brought back in, into the city and David, you know, danced before the Lord and, and just this beautiful picture of, uh, of, of people worshipping and praising God because the Ark symbolised God's presence and God's power with his people. You know, the, the people had in, in, in some ways had sort of treated it as kind of like a bit of a talisman, you know, that they could sort of, ta- wherever they sort of took it with them, then they could be victorious over everyone. Well, God had showed them that if their hearts went in the right place, then that wouldn't happen at all. And that's why they lost the ark in the, in, you know, in the first place. But the ark was very much this symbol of God's, of God's presence and power with his people. And so it coming to Jerusalem, the center of, of, of life, of the Israelite faith and of life, that was where God would, would, would be seen to dwell and therefore he would be especially honored there in that place. The psalm divides up neatly into four sections. Verses 1 to 3, worship God for his marvelous works. Verses 4 to 6, worship God for his greatness. Verses 7 to 9, worship God for his glory and holiness. And verses 10 to 13, worship God and know gladness and joy. So we're going to just work our way through each of these sections this morning. And uh, I trust that uh, as we do so, that God will really encourage you and, 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 and help all of us to know in a fresh way what it means to worship him. So let's look at verses 1 to 3 to start with. It says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous works among all the peoples. In those three verses, there are six commands, six commands, six imperatives, if you like. Three times we're, we're commanded to sing to the Lord, to sing, to lift our voices to him. And it says we are to sing to the Lord a new song. A new song. Does that mean that there was a new, a new song had to be written especially for this particular occasion? Well, no, it wasn't. It was actually singing about a new thing that God had done. A new thing which God had done. In, um, in this uh, Sing to the Lord, a new song, we see, in Psalm, we see the same kind of phrasing in Psalm 40, verses 2 to 4, which says, He drew me, God drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. 
We see it also in Revelation chapter 5 at the end of time where the people are standing before God and it says, And they sang a new song, a new song to God, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. What, this thing, what these passages are basically saying is that we are to sing this, we are to, we are to celebrate the, the, the work that God has done in redeeming us and securing us the salvation that he has in Jesus Christ. That that is a cause for, for a joy and an, an overwhelming desire within us to, to sing to God and to praise his name for our salvation. We need to come to, 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 to real grips with, with exactly what God has done for us in redeeming us from our sin. In, in securing for us a salvation which means that we have been rescued from the, the consequences of our sin. That we have been, we've been rescued from the wrath of God which would, surely would have been poured out to us in God's righteous judgment on us for our sin. That God has turned that away from us because of Jesus Christ and because of his, his sacrifice on the cross for us. That each and every one of us before Christ were all in a hopeless and helpless situation, all travelling a road destined for eternal damnation, destined for eternal torment and suffering apart from God. But God, who is rich in mercy, reached out to us in his grace and he, and he, and he sent his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to die our death, to pay for our sin in order that we might have this new righteousness before God and, and have our salvation, our relationship secured with him forever and ever and ever. Folks, that is the greatest news that we could ever, ever have in this world today. It is the greatest thing that we could ever, ever celebrate in our lives today. And sadly, we as Christians, we fail to grasp the significance of the salvation which God has for us in Jesus Christ. And we need to wrestle with that and we need to grasp it deeper and we need to help God, help, we need to ask God to, to help us in that. To help us know this great salvation that is ours in Jesus. To have this new song in our hearts. Not only are we to sing to the Lord, we are to praise his name. Of course, this new song results in praise, praising his name, proclaiming his salvation and declaring his glory. They are the six commands, the six imperatives in the first three verses of this psalm. All commands for us to, to do something. It requires a response from us. Notice here then that worship includes a proclamation and a, and a declaration. Worship is not just some private thing that we're to keep to ourselves, that we're to do in isolation from everyone and everything else. We're not meant to just keep it behind the walls of a building. But our worship is meant to be a witness. That's what this whole psalm speaks about, that our worship of God is to be a witness to the nations. 
Our church services, our, our corporate times together should be times where we declare to each other and, and you know, the, the, the excellences of God. That all who come into this place on a Sunday, whether it be a morning service or an evening service, that we come together as we sing our praises to God, we are declaring to one another how great our God is. And we're singing to God out of thankfulness in our hearts for all that he has done for us. People who come into this place on a Sunday should be hit, should be hit right between the eyes by the reality and the genuineness and authenticity of of God's love for us and our love for God. They should tangibly see it in our faces and in our lives, how great our God is. That's what... The psalmist begins by saying that's what worship is about. It is about declaring and proclaiming and singing to the Lord how good and great he is. Which leads us to the uh, the next section, verses 4 to 6. We are to worship God for his greatness. It goes on to say, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. What the psalmist is saying here, folks, is there is no other God like God. There is no other God like him. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 40 for a minute, a few verses from chapter 40. Read from verse 9. He's speaking again of the greatness of God. And the, the prophet says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This declaration, you know, get up on the mountain and proclaim God's excellences. Proclaim that he is indeed a mighty God, but that he is also a tender God. A God who loves and who wants to draw us to himself and who wants to just tenderly care for us in his arms. He goes on to say in verses 25 to 26, To whom then will you compare me, God says, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Lift up your eyes to the skies, to the heavens and see. Who created these, God says. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Who is like God who indeed has created the heavens in all of the grandeur and all of the the glory and all of their splendidness? Who is like God who creates such things? There is no God like him. There is no God like our God. The psalmist says here that uh, all the gods, all the gods are worthless idols. There's a bit of a wordplay that he uses here. The Elohim, speaking the, the, that word for God, the Elohim are Elohim. The gods are nothing. We miss that in the English language. 
But in that original language, this word play, the Elohim are Elohim. The, the gods are nothing. They are worthless idols. Isaiah 44 speaks of the fact that God, that a man will use um, wood to, uh, you know, to, uh, to cut, you know, cut down a tree and he'll use that wood for different purposes. He'll use it to light a fire, to warm himself with and to, to cook his food over. And then he'll take some of that wood and he'll carve an, an idol out of it and he'll bow down and he'll worship that piece of wood. The same piece of wood that he's used to cook his food on and to keep himself warm. How worthless is that? How worthless is that? And yet, folks, we worship so many worthless things in our lives today. There are so many worthless things in this world that we chase after and we idolise and we, we put up in that place of absolute priority and importance in our lives today. It can be material things. It can be relationships. Those people we, you know, people we love it can be people, you know. It can be, it can be, you know, the stature and the and the uh, the position that we that we crave for in our world today. That people will look up to us and think, "Wow, look at that special person! Aren't they good?" We crave these things. We worship them, but God says they are worthless. These things cannot do anything for us. They cannot save us from our sin. Only God can do that. In comparison to these worthless idols, it says that God, but the, but, but the Lord made the heavens. They declare his greatness. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The stars proclaim his handiwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Romans chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 says that the creation displays God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature. They go out into the world so that, that all men are without excuse when it comes to knowing that there is a creator behind all of these things. No one is without excuse. If that is our God... If that is the God we worship, then why on earth do we go after these silly, pointless, worthless things in our lives? I would guarantee that if God were to show up here in this place this morning in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, in all of his power, in all of his might, every single one of us would have to get down on our faces on the floor. We would tremble and we would fall down as though dead. That is the power and the might and the grandeur and the beauty of our God. And it is something that, folks, we need to grasp more and more in our lives today and in these days ahead. Because when we start to see that that grandeur and that glory and that splendor of God in all of his radiance, then all these other things, they just fall away in comparison. They don't even begin to measure up. And that is who God is calling us to be. These people who live out our lives in this, in this world in which we live in this local community, in the places that we, that we move about throughout the weeks, that is God has called us to be people who are there in those places with that view of who he is. And that that cannot help but overflow in our hearts and our lives to those around about us. 
And I've got to confess to you this morning, folks, that I'm, I struggle day by day to be that person. It's hard. Because we want people to like us. We don't want people to think negatively of us. We don't want the world to oppose us. And so instead we choose to sort of, you know, we make these kind of subtle, um, you know, we sort of just try to fit in. We make these subtle compromises in our lives in order to blend in. And God says, I don't want you to be like that. I want you to understand who I am and who you are, who I've created you to be, to reflect my radiance and my glory and my truth and my my love and my grace to the people around about you because these people need a saviour like we need a saviour. Now, God is the only true God, the only God, and as so, he alone deserves to be worshipped. And folks, it is a sin. It is a sin before God not to worship him in the way that he calls us to worship him. So I ask you this morning, does God truly have your heart? How much of your life does God truly reign in today? This morning. How are you really worshipping God in your life? Verses 7 to 9 speak of that we should worship God for his glory. It goes on to say, and this is really a call to the nations, to all people to ascribe, to attribute to God particular things that are due to him, that, that, that are owed to him. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people, all of the individual people groups in our world today, all of the, all of the people with, with a specific language, with a, from a specific tribe, all of these, you know, these very small groups within the world, all families of the people, to come and to ascribe, to give God that which is truly his. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. That word glory speaks of the majestic aura of God's divine presence. That which is so impressive about God, about his person and his power and his activity in our world today. You know, my wife and I, we, uh, you know, from time to time we see glorious sunsets over the back of our back fence at, at home. You know, where the, the clear, lots of different clouds and that sort of stuff, particularly at the end of a sort of rainy, stormy day where you've got all those clouds and the sun going down behind them and you've got all those pinks and purples and oranges and, and golds and, and yellows. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? And you just got to stand there in absolute awe and amazement at something like that. Yet that, that pales into absolute, complete insignificance in light of the glory and the splendour and the grandeur of God. Yet we'll rave about it. We'll put pictures up on Facebook about, wow, did you see this sunset today? Wow, what about the glory of God? How often do we praise him in that way? How often do we sing his praises to those around about us in that way? 
We're called to prostrate ourselves before God, to bow down before him. It's this picture of, of, a, of a peasant who comes before a king and he gets down on his hands and knees and his face to the ground and he holds up, he holds up this, this offering in his, in his arms like this to the king, hoping that, he, that the king will receive him and show him favour. Because if the king doesn't, he could you know, be taken out and, and lose his life just like that. So there's this real uncertainty as you come and bow before God like this. But we as Christians, we don't have to come to God like that anymore. Amen? Amen. We don't have to come to God in that trembling and like this anymore because we know that, that Jesus Christ has paid our sacrifice. The offering we bring to God is not our own, but it is Jesus Christ himself, our sacrifice, our offering for sin. And so we can come with boldness and confidence and yet we still come recognising that, that, that God is indeed the glorious and the holy and the powerful and the mighty God. So there is still that proper sense of reverential awe and respect for him. We don't call him the big guy upstairs. We don't refer to him as, the, you know, as, as, as Huey or whatever it is who sends the rain. Oh, that gets me. It really does. We're talking about the God of the creator, the creator God here. The one who holds our very lives in his hands. And if he chooses to do it right at that minute, he could take your life from you. Every breath that you take, everything that you do throughout the day is, 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 is brought about by the power of the, and the work of God in your life. You are completely and utterly dependent upon him for everything. We are to come and bring that offering of Christ as our offering. And we are to also offer our lives. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, to present your whole beings as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Because this is your spiritual act of worship. We are to every day surrender ourselves to God and say, God, I am yours. Do with me what you will. Is that the attitude that we get up with in the morning when we get out of bed? Is that the first thing that we say to God in the morning? God, I am yours. Use me for your glory today. Give me the boldness and the courage to be your person in this world, in the places where I go today. Help me to know again in all of your grandeur and all of the splendor, all of your splendor, how what a, what a mighty and awesome God that you are. It needs to be that, folks. Verses 10 to 13 says, Worship God and know gladness and joy. Verse 10 says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. God, he reigns. And knowing that God reigns, knowing that God is sovereign over all, means that we can be assured that God's purposes are the ones that will prevail. That as we look around us in our world and we see things falling apart, we know that it is not out of God's control, that God is the one who is indeed working out all things for his purpose, for his will, for his glory, and that in the end, what he deems will happen will happen. 
God is the one who sets the limits. He's the one who sets the foundation. So whenever you face situations in your lives or trials in your lives, you can be sure and confident in knowing that God has set the limits of that, of that very thing. And that in God, the, the strength that he gives us will enable us to endure and, give, and bring him glory through a dependence and a trust in him despite all we face in our lives today. It says here that the, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. God is saying it's established. Nothing will move you know, because God has, has got it all under control. Not only is God king, but he is also judge. That he will judge in righteousness and faithfulness. God will set everything right. There's a lot of injustice and things that happen in our world today. There's a lot of things that happen in our world today that are just plain wrong. There are things that happen in our lives that are just plain wrong. But God promises that there will come a day when he will set it all right. Where justice will prevail. And God will do it in in, in an absolute, perfectly right and just way. And because we know that, then we can, as, as believers, we know that our vindication will be in Christ at that time. That no matter what the world thinks about us today, that there will come a day where we will indeed be vindicated in the eyes of all of the world. Where it will be proved to them that we are indeed we're on the right track after all. And that was only because of God's grace and mercy towards us, not because of anything we did. God, is, God he reigns. God is judge. Looking at Psalm 96, then to sum up, let me just say this, that the worship involves these things. First of all, it involves exalting God, lifting him up with our voices, with our hearts, and in our lives. Exalting God in our lives. Can I ask you this morning, are you exalting God in your life as you should today? Does God have that place of exaltation in your life? It also means declaring and proclaiming God's greatness and his glory. When was the last time you declared the greatness and the glory of God to people around about you? When was the last time you did that? Thirdly, it is calling others to join in the song. Ultimately, we are God's missionaries in this world today. And just as God's heart is for the lost, our hearts need to be for the lost. So how is your heart today? Do you have a true, deep grief for those who are going to a crisis eternity in our world today? And fourthly, worship involves rejoicing in the gladness that comes from knowing God and being recipients of his favour in Jesus Christ. Where do you find your joy? Where do you ultimately find your joy today? Is it in Jesus Or is it other things? Only Jesus will come true. Deep joy and gladness in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you'd help all of us to be committed to being people who give you the worship that you truly deserve.
that, Father, you would help all of us to know in a new and glorious way your splendour, your greatness, your glory, your majesty. Lord, to see you in afresh with, with new eyes, Lord, of, of how great a God you are. Lord, that that would impact our hearts and our lives so much that there will be nothing in this world that will even be, be able to compare to you, that we will want nothing else but you. Lord, give us those hearts. Make us be those people. Help us to be people who truly worship God. Amen.